0: We began a new series last week on Abraham, as you just heard. And uh, the whole point of this series is as I started studying this man named Abraham in the book of Genesis, very first book in the Bible, Father Abraham, uh, what I saw was me in his story. And then as I kept reading and studying, what I eventually saw was really all of us in his story. There's so many things about Abraham's story. We're only going to spend four weeks. We easily could have done eight or 12 weeks just looking at this one man, because you're going to see today your story is like his story. Because of this. You ready? This little thing you need to get. If you get nothing else today, I get long-winded. I lose you, whatever it is. I want you to get this, right? What God has done before, he will do again. Let me say that again. What God has done before, he will do again. So last week, if you were here, you heard the message. If not, you'll have to go online to get the details. But I told the story about how God called me to Kingsway, and I told you about kind of the miraculous sign he had to give me to make that clear, the sign of my son, my oldest son from Taiwan. The reason that was hard for me is because when Kingsway called me originally, I was at this church in Colorado, I had a very clear sign from God only roughly a year or so prior. So what happened was my last church was launching a second campus. They had never done that before, but they'd run into this problem with the local government and so they wouldn't allow them to build. And so they decided, you know, we're not going to stop moving the gospel forward. No matter what's going on here, we're going to do something new. So they launched a second campus campus. And after looking for six months for a campus pastor, they weren't finding him. And we were roughly nine months or so out from the launch. They came to me and said, okay, Matt, you've been with us for eight and a half years. We know you, we trust you. We believe God's telling us to make you the campus pastor. And I looked at him and said, I don't even know what a campus pastor is. Like, that is, like, it didn't make any sense to me. What is this thing you're talking about? So I went, and read books, talked to people, but I had no peace. And they kept asking me, and I just kept saying, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. So finally, they got to the point where they came to me and they said, We need an answer. I was sitting in the office, with one of my close friends, mentors, his name is Daryl. Uh, he's one of the executive pastors. So in the org chart, I'm, you know, the youth pastor, I'm down here, and he was up here. So I'm sitting in his office, and he looks at me and says, Matt, we all love you. We're for you. You know, if you don't want this, that's fine, but we need to know because we've got six months to find the person that's not ideal but do you what are you gonna do and I looked and I said I don't know I'm gonna go to the mountains this weekend and, and I'm gonna talk to God and I'm not coming back until I have an answer and he said you are great when are you going I said I don't know I just made that up so, an hour later, I was in the office of another one of the executive pastors. I was talking to him, and he's like, Matt, we really need an answer from you. I'm like, I know, I know. Daryl just said that earlier. He's like, Well, when can we expect an answer? I said, This weekend, I'm going up to the mountains. I'm going to spend time with God. I'm going to come back to life and answer. He's like, oh, Really? When are you going? We'll pray for you. I said, I-, I don't know. I just made it up an hour ago. I was in the office with the senior pastor. Same thing happened. And so, I called my wife and said, I think I'm going to the mountains this weekend. She said, You are? I said, Yeah, but you can't go with me. She's like, Wait a minute. What? I had no idea. It's great planning. This is how I do life. Okay, so I go up to the- mountains to seek the Lord. And I told her, I said, I, 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 I got to hear from God. So if, you know, I'm either going to get a hotel or I'll come back or go right back up. The night. I don't even know. Like I'm just going up. So Friday I got up early in the morning. It was, she went to work. It was my day off. So I go up to the mountains and I stopped by Starbucks to get a drink. Cause everybody knows mountains, prayer and coffee all go when you want to meet God. Those are like the three ingredients you need. <laughs> so I sit at Starbucks and I pull out a journal and here's what I did. I journaled out all the reasons why I couldn't say yes. You ever done this before? Like you do this with marriage, right? You've got that person, you've got this job, this change, this thing. And here's what it came down to it was a list of reasons why I was terribly afraid. But God, what if I mess this up? This is gonna be an $18.5 million second campus. God, that's a massive responsibility. I don't know if I could do it. I don't think I have what it takes. What if I fail? What if I sin and I embarrass you at the church? I mean like this laundry list of just reasons. God, I love the kids I'm with. I've been with them at eight and a half years. I've poured into their lives. Some of them are on the brink of breakthrough. They need me, God. Who's gonna take my place? I don't have a backup plan. We got six months or whatever it is at this point. I just went through this list. And then I finally got done. I looked at the list. I felt exhausted. It took an hour or so just to write the list. And I said, you know, I didn't come here to sit at Starbucks and meet God. I came to talk to God. So I took my list and packed up, and I went up to the mountains. I went through the little check-in thing to go into Rocky Mountain National Park right outside of Estes Park, Colorado, if you've ever been there before. I was going to Bear Lake. And when I went through, they said, where are you going? I said, Bear, they're like, oh, there's about 50 feet of snow today. I said, 15 feet of snow, that's a lot. They're like, no, 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 50 feet of snow. And I was like, oh, And they said, you have snowshoes, right? Uh, I got hiking boots. (laughs) Good luck. Have fun. (laughs) We'll set up a ranger in a few bits, in a couple hours. So I go up into the park, and I spend all day just walking and talking with God, hiking around. This is how I meet God. You can do it however you want. There's no prescribed path. This is just how I meet God. And I just went through these questions one by one by one. But God, what about this? What about this? When I go about halfway through the list, I circle back to the beginning. He said, yeah, but I'm not convinced that you have an answer for the first one, God. After hours of walking with God, I finally came to the end. And and here's the thing. God never spoke. He never said a word. But what he gave me was peace. And towards the end of my walk, as I'm coming back down, I'm going to my car, I just had this peace. And I said, God, it really feels like what you're telling me is you want me to take this new job and to do it. I'm still terrified, God. But if this is what you're asking me to do, I've already told you I'll be faithful. And as I came around this turn, this bird flew in front of me, landed in the tree in front of me, next to me. I looked around, There's nobody around. And, and I, for reasons I don't have time to go into right now, I got this really crazy idea. See, I love animals. I used to go to the mountains just to see animals. I hadn't seen an elk, a deer, a mountain lion, nothing. I literally joke, when I was in the bathroom with the coffee before I went up, not even a spider in the bathroom, nothing in the mountains. And I looked and I said, okay, God, if this is really what you want me to do, then I want you to make that bird come out of that tree and land on my arm. <laughs> I swear this is what happened. And then I thought, well, if I'm going to say this, I better do something about it. And so I slowly <laughs> raised my arm. <laughs> and as soon as my arm was out, it took about one second, the bird flew out of the tree and landed on my arm. I'm not making this up. I promise you this is what happened. I know you think I'm crazy. It took forever. I wouldn't even tell the story because I think everybody's going to think I'm a nut bag. Like... <laughs> And then the bird turned its head for a split second, looked at me as if to say, do you get it now, idiot? And then immediately flew out of my arm back into the tree. And the next thought in my head was, that really didn't just happen, right? (laughs) Like, could have been a fluke. Birds, maybe, I don't know, maybe the mountains, birds, I've never tried this before. Maybe that's normal up here. And so I took my other arm and I went, no, I'm not going to do that. But see, here's the reason. There's this guy in the Bible, his name is Gideon. And Gideon, God called Gideon to do something significant. And uh, Gideon wasn't sure that God was going to do what God said he was gonna do. So Gideon put out a test. I'm gonna put out a fleece, God, in the morning. When I wake up, if the fleece is wet, but the ground is dry, I'll know it's you. And after that happened, Gideon went, Well, maybe there's some great explanation, you know. <laughs> maybe the, the fleece soaked up all the water or something. I don't know. Let's try it the opposite way. So this time I'll put out a fleece. I don't want the, the ground wet, but the fleece dry. And God did it again. So what went through my head was, well, Gideon did it twice, but I promised God, if he ever gave me a physical signs, like the first one ever, then I'll never ask for a second one. I'll just trust that that was legitimate. But this is why when Kingsway called me, I was like, you don't understand, I can't go. So I told him, I literally told Tim Prickett on the phone, I'm gonna go up to the mountains, and I'm looking for a mountain lion. I told God, I said, God, I'm gonna go up, and here's the thing, not a bird this time, I need a bigger sign if you wanna show me that this is what you want me to do. So God, if you want me to do this, and I need to see a mountain lion and make it back to tell the story. (laughs) I even joked, I'm like, a dinosaur, anything you can think of, it's gotta be bigger, and that'll be my sign that you want me to do But it can't be elk, because I see elk all the time. It can't be deer, because I see deer all the time. It's gotta be something, God, significant that you are doing. And I went up and hiked around, and nothing happened. And here's what I learned about God. God often does, again, what he did before, but he's too big and too creative to do the same thing twice. It is extremely rare for God to give a sign. Do you know Why? because we aren't supposed to test him in this way. It's called faith for a reason. In fact, Jesus is tempted in the desert, and he's literally taken up as Satan is tempting him and said, why don't you jump off this building? God won't let you get hurt. He can't, because you're his Christ, his Messiah. He has to save you, right? He has to protect you. In fact, the, the, the passages in the Bible, even it says that. Jesus looks at Satan and says, no. The Bible also says not to test the Lord. So in faith, I'm going to trust that he's with me. I'm not going to test him. Did you know there's only one time that the Bible actually says to test him? Did you know that? It's in the Old Testament. In fact, God literally says, test me in this and you will see. If you give your tithe, I will open up the storehouses of heaven and bless you. I will take care of you. It's the only time in the Bible that we are told to test God. In other words, God says the one time you could take me to the bank is in my generosity. Now, all of that is a fantastic setup for where we are going today with this guy named Abram. So pause everything I've just said as it begins to become clear as we go. So in the story where we left off last week, God goes to this man, Abram, and remember, Abram is from, he's from Ur, that's the town, in the land of the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans are pagans. They do not worship God of heaven. They worship many, many, many false gods. In fact, in Joshua 26, I believe it's verse two, it's right around there, we are told that Abram's father actually worshiped false gods. What does that mean? It means Abram was raised in a land, in, in a home, in, in a family where they worshiped false gods. Why is that important? Because God is leading Abram on a journey. God calls Abram and he says to him, go to a land that I will show you and I'm going to do something significant in you. And Abram believes God, but Abram doesn't really have any idea of who God is. Take a look at the promise. This comes from Genesis chapter 12, verse one. The Lord said to Abram, Leave your native country, your relatives, and your father's family, and go to the land I will show you. And I will make you into a great nation. I will bless those, sorry, I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram, I know you don't know me. I know you live in a foreign land. I know you've got your own ideas and concepts about who I am and how I work with people in the world, but Abram, I'm about to blow your mind. So I want you to follow me. Now, Romans and Hebrews and other passages in the Bible tell us Abram literally didn't know where he was going. It was like, just go. So Abram starts heading off toward the land that God would show him. And God revealed to him Canaan. It was about 400 miles south. Abram is 75 years old. His wife is roughly 65 years old. She's barren and has no children. They bring everything with them, which which we don't know exactly what it is, but it accumulates to a number of livestock and male and female servants. And he takes his nephew, Lot. So he leaves all of his family, except for one guy, Lot. When they get to Canaan, there's a severe famine we talked about last week. And the famine makes Lot and Abram decide they gotta figure something out. So they run to Egypt. When they get to Egypt, Abram lies to Pharaoh, if you remember the story, last week, it says, hey, that hottie who's um, with me, she's not my wife, she's my sister. Now, what's going on there is he's lying because he believes he's got to protect his family and protect the promise of God. But Abram, earlier in the story, does not yet understand that God is protecting his own story. He doesn't need me to take matters into my own hands. He's got it taken care of. So, when he lies to Pharaoh, Pharaoh buys Sarai his sister, wife from him and takes her into his home and he's going to marry her. And um, before they could consummate the marriage, basically what happened was God sends a plague on his, uh, on Egypt, a terrible plague. And Pharaoh comes to Abram and says, whoa, what in the world? Why did you lie to me? Take this wife, sister thing back, take her and take everything I've given you and go. Now that's all important because just to make a quick point, remember what I said, God uses the past and does the same thing again, but he does it differently. He's too creative to do the same thing twice. Can you think of any other passages in the Bible, those of you who've been doing this for a while, where God sent plagues on Egypt to punish a Pharaoh? So when Moses and the Israelites, 450 or so years later, would finally have the same thing happen, they would look back at Abraham's story, Abram's story and go, oh God already did this once, and the same is true for you, and the same is true for me, Today, So let's pick up where we are today. Genesis chapter 13. Let me do a, a little bit of summarizing for you so abram and lot take all of their stuff now they've got all of what they possess plus everything pharaoh gave them and they are abundantly rich lots of gold and silver and new male and female servants of livestock and they head back but the problem is they're heading back to where the famine was and they get to this area called the negev and eventually what starts to happen is lots of people start fighting with abram's people there's not enough resources in the land to meet the needs When the world has got up to, he keeps calling Abram to these hard places and situations. But essentially, Genesis 13, eight, finally, it says, Abram said to Lot, let's not allow this conflict to come between us or our herdsmen. After all, we're close relatives. The whole countryside is open to you. So take your choice of any section of the land you want, and we will separate. If you want to go, if you want the land to the left, I'll take the land to the right. If you prefer the land to the right, then I'll go to the left. Okay, hey, quick question. Whose land is this? It's a trick question. Well, right now, it's the Canaanites' land. But whose land is it going to be? Abram's? How do I know? God told him. Remember the very first thing I let, read you? Abram, go to the land that I will show you. I'm going to give you the land that I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make a great nation out of you in this land. So now Abram is in that land and he looks at Lot and he says, Lot, you look around at this land and pick whichever piece or parcel you want. How can Abram make such a generous offer? It's not even his land. It's somebody else's land. And beyond that, it is going to be his land. How in the world can Abram look at Lot and say, just pick and you can have it? Now, some will point out that Abram is being passive. Abram is being a wimp. If Abram were a strong, confident man of God, he would just look at Lot and say, Lot, you go over there. This is my land. God's giving this to me. I don't think that's the case at all. See, in that culture, Abram is what's called a patriarch. A patriarch. So when Lot's daddy died, he was now responsible. Abram was responsible as Lot's uncle to care for him. The reason he took him, I believe, is because Abram was fulfilling what he believed was his call, his godly responsibility to care for those under his care. And Lot fit that bill. So when God told him to leave his family, was he supposed to leave Lot? I don't know. Literally, the Bible doesn't say. But here we are. Abram has no problem looking at Lot and saying, choose whatever you want. You can have it. How can he do that? I don't know about you, but I struggle with that. My people, my cattle, my family are really struggling to make ends meet. But you pick what's best. Well, that's kind of exactly what happens. Look at verse 11. Lot chose for himself the whole Jordan Valley to the east of them. He went there with his flocks and servants and parted company with his uncle Abram. So Abram settled in the land of Canaan. And Lot moved his tents to a place near Sodom and settled among the cities of the plain. But the people of this area were extremely wicked and constantly sinned against the Lord. And we'll talk about Sodom maybe a little bit later if we have time in the series. You may have heard of Sodom and Gomorrah. Some bad junk goes down there. But the important thing for us today is to note this Again, what Lot chooses is the most fertile area. Oh, I can see over there to the east. Man, they've got water abundantly. Everything is green. There's lots of resources. We'll pack up our tents and our people and we will move over there. And Abram says, "Fine, done." How can he do that? That leaves Abram with the part of the land where the famine is. That leaves Abram with hardly any resources to care for his own. What in the world is going through Abram's mind? How can he make such a generous offer? It makes literally no sense in a practical way. But generosity is always that way, isn't it? I mean, anytime God calls us to be generous, it doesn't make sense, does it? The dollars never add up. Here we are getting down to the last few days of my Peru trip being due, and uh, some of us are talking and praying and trying to figure out how we come up with a little more money for this project. And Gretchen Becker, who works with Chris Fowler in our missions department, she says, You know, Matt, I can't explain it, but I'm telling you, I get to help manage all these trips and bring all the details and the coordination together. She says, It blows me away every time. Every time. God always shows up, a check always comes in, something always happens, it always works. In a way that I can't explain, I just know when faith, when godly people step out and do godly things, somehow it always works. I've got a better answer from that, but I can't give it to you to the end. So let's keep going. I want you to take a look at what happens next. Genesis chapter 13, verse 14. After Lot had gone, the Lord said to Abram, so he comes to build up, encourage Abram. Look as far as you can see in every direction, north and south, east and west. What? Didn't Lot just leave and go east? Yep. I am giving all this land as far as you can see to you and your descendants as a permanent possession, and I will give you so many descendants that like the dust of the earth, they cannot be counted. Go and walk through the land in every direction for I am giving it to you. What in the world is going on here? Let's just track Abram's story. Pagan man raised in a pagan country and a family that worshiped pagan gods. God calls him and in, in faith. Abram believes God. But Abram doesn't have surrendered faith. Abram believes that God is going to do what God said he could do but at this point we're at least a year or two after the initial call I mean just simple math about how long it takes to move that many people 400 miles and down to Egypt the back up from Egypt and to split it's simple we're a little over a year we don't know how long it's been but God I'm like 75 somewhere between 75 and 80 at this point at some point are you going to bring the promise about like if I'm going to be the father of many can we get the father of things started here but God has said not yet I believe the reason God has said not yet is because he's saying, Abram, you don't yet really understand who I am or what I'm doing. But we do see one thing in Abram. His heart is beginning to shift just a little bit in his trust of God. How do we know? Well, remember where we left off last week, where I summarized where we started today, when he goes to Egypt, he has to control the circumstances. In fact, when he leaves Egypt, he takes everything with him. So Pharaoh sends him with all the livestock, sends him with all the gold and silver, sends him with all the male and female servants. And Abram's like, sweet, look, God said he would bless those who, who bless me and curse those who curse me. And so this is God blessing me and cursing Pharaoh. Even though Abram's the one who lied to Pharaoh, this is what God is doing. But now we're starting to see a shift in Abram. I don't have to understand all the ways that God is going to do everything. My only job is to be faithful, so Lot, pick whatever you want. Pick. Just pick. And then God shows up after that and says, Abram, no matter what Lot does next, no matter where he goes, no matter which part of the land he takes, I am going to give you all of this land. It will literally all be yours. Go ahead, look east. Look west. Look north. Look south. It's yours. It's yours. Now, what's God doing here? God is reaffirming to Abram what he's already promised him. Here's what I know. Remember, the past is a great model for what God will do in the future. The only thing is he'll never do the same thing twice. He's going to change up exactly how he does it. Abram, go walk the land. Go, go ahead. Look, Walk it all. Wander it all. And just see all of it as best as you can because I'm giving it all to you, Abram. When, God? Don't worry about that, Abram. In fact, later in the story, it's going to be hundreds of years before your people possess the land. Hundreds of years. But don't worry, I am going to come through. What God's doing in this moment is kind of what we do. There's the difference between a promise and say a covenant or a promise, you might say a contract. So husbands, when you went to your wife and you got down on one knee and you handed her a ring and you said, baby, will you be with me forever? And she said, yes, I will. I'll never forget the day it happened for me. I planned this whole secret thing. I got together, I had a guy from college uh, with me. Uh, Michael Rogers actually lives in Danville right now. And uh, he set this whole thing up. And I went out and went on this cool date down on the wall in Cincinnati. My wife is real romantic. And he'd set up this dinner, had her favorite like Chinese meal there. And uh, we sat down and ate, and literally like there were these lilies like falling down all around. It was like this beautiful Hollywood moment till one landed her eye, busted open. Anyway, so we're, uh, we're enjoying this moment. I get down on one knee and she's like bawling and she's hugging me. And I'm like, can you just say yes? I really need to hear yes. She finally said yes, but here's the thing. We didn't get married for three months. All she had for me at that point is a promise. And three months later, I don't recommend that. Three months later, we got married. And I stood at the altar, and I said, for better or for worse, rich or poor, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. And at that point, the promise became a contract, right? Right? What God is doing is he's not given any contract. There's no covenant built. There's nothing between he and Abram. Abram has only this. And this is huge for you today. You need to understand this. Abram only has his faith. That the God who keeps showing up and saying, I'm going to do this, when, not yet, but soon, I'm going to give this to you when, not yet, but later, I'm going to bless you. I know, God, you keep blessing me, but just have So easy to say, isn't it? So easy to look at Abram and go, well, come on, how hard is it? Look at how the story works out. But in your story and my story, when God does that, it agonizes us, doesn't it? Oh, it eats us up inside. But what it's starting to do for Abram is God is moving him as a man from no faith, very little faith, to a man of deep and profound faith. So what happens next in chapter 14, I have to do a one-two skip of you to get to the real point of where we want to end today, is what happens is, uh, in the area, there are all these little cities. When I say city, don't think Indianapolis. Don't even think Avon, okay? We're talking cities made up of hundreds, possibly thousands of people thousands would be in the biggest. Maybe Avon would be way bigger than the biggest in that day. But in that day, uh, Abram's not even really, a, he's kind of a little mini city in himself, but he's, not, he's a nomad. He's wandering around. Well, there are these four kings who go to battle against five kings, and basically they're intending to take over the whole area and put it under their control. And they've got, based off history, we can estimate they have between maybe 15 and 20,000 troops at the high end, which doesn't sound like many, except for just to give you an idea, Abram's got 317, give or take. One, two, skipping you. It's about the difference. So this is huge. So when these four kings come together, they're going to whoop on these other five kings. So the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, and some other little towns get together to go to battle. And the problem is they lose and they lose bad. And what happens next is basically these four kings, t- kings take all of the stuff of Sodom and Gomorrah, including Lot, and go off with it. Pick up a Genesis 14 verse 11. The victorious invaders then plundered Sodom and Gomorrah and headed for home, taking with them all the spoils of war and the food supplies. They also captured Lot, Abram's nephew, who lived in Sodom and carried off everything he owned. So what Abram does, he gets together with a couple little clans nearby, not even really established cities, and he says, all right, I got 300-something trained men. So just back up for a minute. That tells us Abram's a great leader, right? If he's got 300-something trained men, plus their spouses, their kids, those who are too old to fight, those, again, kids are too young to fight, the sick, he probably has about 1,000 people in his home, in his responsibility, in his care. He's a, he's a good leader. He's got some clues about some things. But he gathers 300-something trained men. Don't think Navy SEAL here, Okay. Think farmer who's good with a tool. That's what you need to think of when you think trained men. These are strong guys who are used to working with their hands. That's about as good as it gets then. And he gathers his little measly army and he goes to fight the leftovers of the 15 to 20,000. This is probably 300 and something to add in those couple small towns. It's maybe 1,000 against 10,000. We're ballparking. But who's gonna win? It's hard to answer that one, right? The one who's gonna win is the one who's with a God. Can you think of any other biblical stories where God did something just like this? You know, like in Gideon, in the book of Judges, where God takes a very small army and beats a bigger one. How about David, where a small teenage boy beats the snot, kills the strong, biggest, toughest giant of the day? And the list goes on and on and on. Daniel in a lion's den, Peter the fisherman against the entire government of the day. Jesus. This is what God does. He uses the past to affirm in us in the present that God, against all odds, can literally do whatever he desires to do. And all we need to do is have faith. So Abram goes to war and he wins. In fact, Genesis chapter 14, verse 16. Abram recovered all the goods that he had taken, and he brought back his nephew Lot with his possessions and all the women and other captives. So what happens next is a little meeting takes place between Abram... And the king of Sodom, ironically, the text tells us that there were tar pits everywhere, and many of, the, many of the soldiers fell into the tar pits. So it's quite possible the king of Sodom comes out of his slimy tar pit and finds Abram covered in the junk, which is so fitting for the king of Sodom and what we learn about Sodom later. But he comes crawling out of his hole and basically finds Abram, and this dude shows up on the scene, and the dude's name is Melchizedek. We're going to read that, and I'll do my best to make sense of it in 30 seconds. You can spend hours on this topic. So grace, lots of grace today. But they show up to have a meeting. Now, let's take a look, first of all, at what Melchizedek says. Genesis chapter 14, verse 18. And then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed Abram, saying, blessed be Abram by God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And praise be to God most high, who delivered your enemies into your hand. then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Go back to verse 18 for a second. Let's talk about Melchizedek. Melchizedek literally means king of righteousness. So he's king of righteousness, and he's also the king of Salem. Now, if you know anything about Jewish history, there's a really important city in the Bible, and it's called Jeru Salem, which is actually the Hebrew word Shalom or Shalem. It just depends on how you pronounce it, but it's the exact same word. In case you weren't here on New Year's Day, Todd spoke, did a fantastic job talking about shalom. Shalom is what the whole Bible is about. The entire thing, shalom. Because in the garden, Adam and Eve had shalom. They lost shalom when they when they sinned against God and now we've been living without shalom most of our lives. We've been fighting with each other. We've been fighting with God. We've been fighting with others and now there's enmity in the world. And so what happens is God is restoring in Christ shalom. So this character comes out. He's the king Of righteousness, he's the king of shalom, and he brought bread and wine. Does anybody think that's a little bit weird? Here's why it's weird. Like, I don't know, why is that weird? Sure, tell me, Pastor. Here's why it's weird. Number one, there is a very, very, very clear understanding of Jesus, the Messiah, as the king of righteousness and the king of peace. That's what shalom means. So how is it we have a character in the Old Testament who looks like he accomplishes what Jesus accomplishes, and yet Jesus isn't even on the scene for another 2,000 years? But again, why is he bringing bread and wine? Some will argue that the bread and wine is just a common experience of the day. I don't doubt that at all, but I find it extremely ironic then that the night before Jesus is crucified, he takes the bread and he takes the wine and he gives it to his disciples and he says, eat this bread, drink this wine in remembrance of me. If you've ever read Genesis, in fact, if you've ever read any Old Testament or New Testament books, even start in Matthew or Luke, you'll see the same two things in there. You'll learn that uh, uh, genealogy is a really big deal because for instance in Luke and Matthew they want to connect Jesus to David they want to connect Jesus to Abraham they want to connect Jesus to Adam even, Noah and so they they go out of their way to show you genealogically how look, 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 look he connects all these heroes of the faith in the book of Genesis this is such a big deal we learn about God because he's the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and yet Melchizedek shows up on the scene and he's the king of righteousness the king of peace, a priest of God and we have no idea where he came from we don't know who his mommy is. We don't know who his daddy is. And we don't know where he goes next. Right after this, he disappears until we get to Psalm 110 and Hebrews 7. And then we get a reference to him in both of those. And in both cases, we're told that he is a priest of God whose beginning and end doesn't exist. He has no beginning. He has no end. Does that mean Melchizedek wasn't real? No, I don't think that's what it means at all. I think it means on the biblical scene, I think there was a real dude named Melchizedek. He really was serving God, but he represents something bigger and bigger. In the story this is what we call in biblical terms typology there are all these things in the old testament that happen and when we look at them they point to something bigger especially in christ so a lamb in the old testament is really cool but then when jesus is called the lamb of god we understand jesus wasn't really a lamb we we can understand this thing the lamb pointed to this thing jesus The same thing happens again in King David. David was a great king, the first king of Israel, a king after God's own heart, but Jesus is a perfect king, an eternal king. Melchizedek was a priest in the order of God before the Levites ever came about who were the priests of God, and Jesus is like this priest but better. Baptism in the, in the Old Testament it was called the flood. The flood wiped sin off the earth, but baptism today wipes sin from our conscience is what Peter tells us in first, or first Peter chapter 3. And so that is the baptism like a flood? Did it kill people? No, it's the exact opposite. It brought life, but this is like this. Does that make sense? The reason that's important is because something significant is going on here. A man shows up on the scene. He has no beginning. He has no end. He shows up and he disappears in the story because I believe the man is to point you to Jesus. Jesus shows up in the story and the king of Sodom comes out and Abram comes out and Abram looks at this priest of God, this king of righteousness, this king of peace. And he says, here, take a 10th of everything I have. A tent of all the spoils of war. A tent of all that I own. Here. Let me ask you a question. How in the world can Abram be so generous? This just cost him his time, his effort, his energy, his men, his resources. And here he is giving it away to a man he doesn't even know. It's because... Well, let's just wait. Genesis chapter 14, verse 21. The king of Sodom then said to Abram, Give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, With raised hand I have sworn an oath to the Lord, God most high, creator of heaven and earth that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the strap of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me to Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre. Let them have their share. So I want you to get this. King of Sodom shows up. Abram shows up. Abram's got all the spoils of war. Melchizedek shows up. No idea who that dude is, but I believe he's to point us to Jesus, absolutely. And Abram says, okay, here you go. Melchizedek, 10th of everything from the war, 10th of everything I have. Sodom says, all right, you keep all the rest of the stuff. Just give me the people back. Because without people, I can't be a king. You can't be a king of nothing. You know, I've tried that at home, sitting on the couch, like, hey, somebody give me a drink. I'm king of the house. It doesn't work real well. They're like, yeah, good luck with that. Okay, so... You can't be king of nothing. Give me back the people. You keep the stuff. And Abram says, no. No. You give a portion of the spoils to the men who went with me, these other kings of the towns who sent their people with me. You give them a portion to cover their costs. You take everything else. How can Abram make such a generous offer? He's putting everything on the table and getting nothing in return. How can he do that? It's because of this. Everything's been building to this one moment. You ready? Because when Abram started on his journey of faith, all he had was a promise from God that God would do in him the most significant thing imaginable if only Abram would have faith. And Abram trusted God, but not completely. Abram is, as I called him last week, An unbelieving believer. So Abram does not fully trust God. And the next piece of the trust that Abram had to do in his journey with God is he had to trust him with his material possessions. And I'm here to tell you right now, if you're watching online, if you're visiting with us today, you're checking out God, you're not sure, I promise you this. Very early in your faith journey, God is going to challenge you to trust him. Early in your faith journey, God is going to ask you to trust him financially in some capacity or another. Why? Because God knows that money is the one thing he must compete with in every person. In fact, even people who don't have much money still are tempted by money. So it doesn't matter if you have a lot or have a little, It's always a temptation. The Bible acknowledges this. Some pastors and scholars will tell you that Jesus talks about money more than heaven and hell combined. That's a lot. Why? Because as Jesus says in his own words, you cannot serve two masters. You'll hate one and despise the other or love one and hate the other. I think I said that wrong the first time. Hate and despise are the same thing, aren't they? You'll love one and hate the other. be committed to one and despise the other why because in this world faith is driven by what we can't see but money is driven by what we can see and so it's so much easier to chase after money and possessions and things but as abram has grown in his faith and his understanding with god abram is now at that place where he could say you know what Lot, choose whatever you want from the land. Melchizedek, take 10% of everything I have. You know what? I'm going to go to war. I'm going to take my resources and spend them to win back Lot and his family. Sodom, take the rest. I don't need it. How can you possibly say that? It's because Abram gave you a clue in the text earlier he called god yahweh el elion creator of heaven and earth elway or yahweh el elion creator of heaven and earth if you missed last week, I told you Yahweh is the, f- the name of God, his real name. Like what I would come to you and say, Hi, my name is Matt. It's nice to meet you. That was what God would say. If he were to come to you, he'd say, I am Yahweh. In fact, he'd literally just say, I am. That's what Yahweh means. I am. Exactly. Yes, I am. You are. Fill in the blank. No, I am. You are. Yes, I am. Good. Who's on first? I am. Anyway, I am. But what he adds in this moment is a title to Yahweh. So if you look at the text where it says, Lord, God most high, it literally is Yahweh, El Elyon. Well, the El literally means God, and then you get Elyon, and it's there again. It's quite repetitive. I am God, God the highest. Literally, that's what it means if you were to do a literal translation in Hebrew. In other words, Abram, in this journey from pagan land, pagan household, pagan father, lots of gods, not really sure, but hey, he said he's gonna bless me. I'll go with him. He's now at the place of saying, I don't understand how all of this works quite yet, but I know this, of all the false gods we see in the world, you are the greatest God. You are the only God. You are El Elyon, God most high. And it goes further, you're the creator of heaven and earth. Why is that significant? Because it's Abram's statement that in his faith, he believes the one who has made everything has all the resources necessary to do everything he has purposed to do. So I can give land a lot God most high creator of heaven and earth will do what he wants. I can give to Melchizedek 10% because God most high creator of heaven and earth will do what he wants. I can give to Sodom what he doesn't deserve, this evil king who rules unrighteously, but I'm not worried about it. Why? Because God most high creator of heaven and earth will do what he wants. What we're seeing in Abram is what we need to see in us. This journey of trust as it relates to physical, material possessions, this letting go of temporal things to trust the one who is eternal. Two months ago, if you were here watching online, I challenged you, I said, if somebody were to evaluate your spending, to look at your bank account, what comes in and what goes out, would they be able to say, would they be able to say, you are a generous people? It's tax season, right? There's never gonna be any more going out than right now, most likely, although maybe Trump's plan changed that. You're gonna see with unbelievable clarity whether that question ring is true, and here's here's my challenge to you. As you're doing that, and as you're evaluating, and you're looking at what's coming in and what's going out, If the Lord should reveal to you, I do not have a generous heart that reflects that I trust God to do whatever he wants, then I just want you to pray, God, change my heart. Do in me what you did in Abram. Solidify in me, God, what needs solidified, that I would be willing to trust you and let go of this death grip I have on things and stuff that I might surrender to you. At the end of the day, Abram believed God. How about you? What we're gonna do right now is, we're gonna take that bread and that wine. Okay, we don't have wine here. Juice. I wonder if we could grow our church if we did that. I'm just kidding. (laughs) It's a joke, it's not happening. Please don't send an email. What we're going to do is we're going to take this moment to be with Yahweh El Elyon. And here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to start a prayer, and then I'm just going to grab my iPad, grab the stand. I'm going to walk off stage. I'm going to ask you to talk to him. I'm going to ask you to lay out before him whatever it is you need to lay out, because he's listening. And just remember what he's done in the past, he will do again, if you'll trust him. Father, God, I just pray right now that you would do in us what you did in Abram and even more so. Yahweh, El Elyon, God most high creator of heaven and earth. You were abundantly faithful to Abram. You changed him. You changed his trust, his faith, his beliefs, and you, would you do it again in us? God, in order for us to really step out in faith and trust that you will show up, that you are showing up, God, in order for us to be able to write checks to churches and ministries and to people in need, the only way we can do that, God, is if we see you acting and build on that, So, Father, open our eyes that we might see all the ways that you have shown up, blessed, moved, stirred, done what you and you alone can do. That, God, we would have that faith to trust you, to be like you in this world. God, as we do that, meet us in this place and continue to reveal your goodness to us.